0: So um, what a delight it is for me uh, to host such a wonderful panel. Normally we follow each other on Twitter. uh, We meet once a year at the conference, if we are lucky. And today we are together and we've got the opportunity to talk about our passion, interpreting and technology. And I think this is wonderful. So first of all, I'd like to thank the organisers and thank Alex as well for inviting me to moderate this panel. Um, As um, you kindly said, you know, we would like it to be a discussion rather than um, a lecture. So we're going to invite you to give us your questions. We've got plenty. We actually started (laughs) debating last night at the pub, which (laughs) we be the (laughs) know where we met. Uh, So we've got quite a lot of ideas. but (laughs) but We'd like to include your ideas to our questions so we can vote and talk about what you want to speak the most about. Okay, so Christmas is coming, magic wand, yeah. I'm giving you whatever you want. What are you asking
1: for? Well, I'm just going to jump in and, and oh, just yes. take take, off where, uh, uh, or take over where Josh left off because he was talking about uh, note-taking co- tools. So this may be quite specific, but I, I think what, what we would like to see, and I think I can speak for the both of us, would be to, to see a very interpreter-specific note-taking tool with a few tweaks here and there, um, and uh, there are uh, some apps that are getting close to it, but I have I have some fever dreams probably. Uh, for example, for example I, I would like to see a small corner in a note-taking app where I could just enter something and it would give me relevant search results, so it would just turn the handwriting into proper text and then run that against, uh, I don't know, a, a database or something, so it would give me translations or more background information, that kind of thing.
2: Well, I know we're talking about our dreams here, but (laughs) I'm not convinced that we should be developing our own apps uh, for note-taking when there are commercial options on the market, which meet a good portion of our needs. So we can talk about that more. Maybe we'll hear from other people now, but but I'm not, I, I agree with you, but I'm not sure we should go down that route.
1: Do you think the app developers would be open to that kind of feedback? Because this is very thorough. I don't know if they always get that kind of feedback from their users. Probably not. They...
2: I think some of them are more receptive to mm-hmm. this kind of feedback than others, certainly.
3: And actually, if I can jump in on that, Josh, I would agree. And I would say, given the fact that what we've seen is a move to virtual applications, I mean, the only hardware that we have is general purpose hardware that we can adapt. And so that the specialization of the applications that we need really are a question of code. And so if there is a company that's very close to having something that would be the ideal tool, by and large, if they're not enormous uh, you know, technology behemoths, they're actually quite open to listening to what users have to say, and are quick to incorporate feedback when they see that it's going to bring them, one, a broader market, or it's going to improve the user experience. Okay.
0: Um, Any other contributions?
4: Yes. Anya, um, um, my, my subject area is more the general information, knowledge management aspect of everything, which I wrote my PhD about, and in 2003, I published an article exactly here, which was about exactly that question, that I'm a lazy person and what I want is an information butler that brings all the information together I need so that I can concentrate, like Sarah put it yesterday, on the creative decision-making, rendering, interpreting I'm supposed to do and not looking up terms over and over again and putting together the documents and try if I find the term in the reference documents or in my glossary or in the agenda or wherever and do all this mechanical work for me like extracting we've seen amazing things today that go in the right direction but i think the uptake interpreter wise is so low because it's just too complicated to assemble all this and make it something that i can use
1: just like this
5: mm-hmm. yeah, and i think this Sorry, no, well, yeah to, to link to that uh, I think, and from my experience working with with interpreters, what they are really looking for is a one stop shop solution, <laughs> something that they, they could have you know literally one click would give them access to all the information that they need, and maybe to to answer jeffrey 's more specific uh, example, what kind of ideal sort of terminology support tool would you like um, i don 't know, but we we, we are we're having a very long sort of pilot project on this, starting from sort of classical terminology extraction. And then, and, and then we showed this tool to our colleagues and asked for their feedback. And basically, they didn't like it very much because they said, you know, I'm afraid it doesn't give me everything that I need. Um, there is a lot of noise, obviously. I'm afraid that I'm going to miss something. And then, then so, so we started thinking how to, how to, do, how to, how to improve it and then you, you can obviously improve it to a certain degree using classical methods and, and technologies. But then the, what they were sort of um, hinting at is, was maybe we could combine some of the traditional workflows with, the new, with some new workflows. So yeah, terminology extraction is nice, but the way we work with terminology is not really what people think when they think about terminology. Mm. They are not really, really looking for, for terms, but for phrases that are interesting in, interesting lexical items, and they like to highlight them on paper and write the equivalent next to it. So we, we are thinking now of having this done in a digital manner. So let them highlight stuff digitally, and then create a, a list of terms, or whatever we call them, then provide them with equivalence of these terms in the languages that they need um, and, and 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 in that way they will be more willing to adopt this technology uh, because they will be sure that they highlighted what they wanted, it, it is giving them what they really want, what they really like and they are happy with it. And coming back to, to this one-stop shop, we have an internal uh, application and, and the skick has, has a something similar where you have access to your assignments as an interpreter. Uh, so a list of, of all the meetings that you have to go to. And then linked to it, we have that, uh, we have documentation. So they have direct access to documentation relevant for each assignment. And from there, we could have another link to this term extraction, whatever highlighting tool, and that's, that's a step towards this one-stop shop.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a... Yeah, as so related to, um, I think your question as well, uh, Ruslan, uh, the, the question of adoption in the interpreting community, um, I think it's a very interesting uh, question, and but I, I think there are different shades there, so there's definitely, I think, some similarity to tech in general, and I don't know, Barry, you can maybe speak more to that, sort of the early adopters and then the others that sort of follow other people's leads, so uh, I suppose we're... Very much early adopters. We like to try out things, and then you, for example, will teach it to your students, and we will we will mention it in an online webinar, that kind of thing. So we we are trying to to look at the tools that are out there, sort of consumer products, off the shelf products. We we try to look at how it can fit our workflow, and if we find something that works reasonably well, I think we we always try to recommend it to others. So there's a sort of cascade, I think, in terms of um, adoption, certainly.
2: I want to come back to Jeffrey's question. I think you were asking specifically about terminology-related tools, and we've gone off on our wish list of everything a little bit. Uh, But I have some thoughts on what I want from a terminology tool, so I thought that I would share them. Uh, This morning during during your session, I tweeted, my dream for terminology management tools, platform-independent, cloud-based, with dynamic offline search functions. I think that's the direction Things are moving in. Interpreters are often working with low connectivity or no connectivity, uh, at least freelancers. And also, also, when I'm working for the institutions on yeah. mission, it happens Troubling. regularly. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's important. It needs to be fast. Anything that's too slow <coughs> is, not, is not useful. Um, there needs to be not too much noise. Well, I'll, I'll put the term distraction in a second, but um, not too many things on the screen. When you're looking for something, you want to find the term fast and be able to use it and move on. So I think that this might be especially relevant for your tool because you have a lot of additional information. You have all of these different fields that may not be relevant to interpreters. Or maybe they want to click and look at them later, but they want to be able to get to the translation right away. Uh, I think it needs to be visually appealing. Uh, This was something I was thinking during your presentation. There are a lot of ugly tools on the market.
1: Uh, Not yours, Claudio. Maybe
2: subconsciously this is something that that I think about and that I've seen people are willing to to adopt when that's available. Um, I want to say also a few things about term extraction since you brought this up. Um, I think term extraction is one of the next things we will see, um, next pieces of technology adopted by interpreters. Uh, because it speeds up our workflow, it helps us to quickly derive the glossary, and half the time you get assigned in some institutions, an hour before or when a meeting has already started, you need to be able to quickly exactly. throw in a document, pull out the key terms, or be given a glossary that would be relevant in that in that case.
4: I tried that just to illustrate to, to yes. that. I, I was on an assignment first kick, and you, I just... Put the legal act into the extraction machine, the sketch engine one, and read the terms. And I really saw that all the terms that had come up in the meeting were on the extraction list, which I found really Mm -hmm. encouraging.
2: It's really cool. Um, One issue I have with this tool, which I love for the record, um, is that our corpora tend to be very small. We have one document, I mean, I thought it was pretty big. I was throwing a 60-page document into the tool to try to extract terms. For them, that's tiny for people who do terminology extraction. So, I think it would be very interesting to bear in mind that specific need of interpreters when thinking about term extraction um, tools. I also want my tools to not involve any unnecessary clicks. The ones I like most are the ones where I can do my job fastest when I look at different tools that offer term, that I can look at parallel texts and pull out the terms I want from each one, the ones where I can just highlight, highlight and hit enter are preferable to the ones where I have to highlight and go through a series of shortcuts and highlight and go through a series of shortcuts and hit enter. So so I think it needs to be fast and versatile and easy to use uh, for it to be worth it for us. And one last point on term extraction, I would love to see bilingual and multilingual term Mm -hmm. extraction tools where we can, you're working for the institutions, you have documents in three or four languages, Mm -hmm. you throw them into this tool, it pulls out the terms for you, and it matches up the terms across the different languages. That's something that I would like to say.
5: Can can I add to that? I mean, um, and and this is actually quite feasible, because at least in the case of the European Parliament, where we work in committees, for example, with documents, uh, reports or amendments or opinions that have already been translated in all the official languages. So there are translation memories you could link up yeah. to and get these equivalents in, in no time. And another thing um, that uh, is not mentioned that frequently in this context, but which we also got from this pilot project was that despite the fact that our colleagues didn't like the, the, the term extraction feature that much, they still liked the idea of the tool because it was giving them a gist of the document in some way. So my next thought was, let's go for automatic text summarization, which Gloria mentioned in her, in her poster presentation. There's not that much talk in our context about it. I think it's a useful, uh, alley interesting. To, an interesting alley to explore. Mm. Can I not, just oh, sorry, go ahead.
3: <clears throat> finish up? You can see we have a very long Christmas list. <laughs> <semester.
0: laughs> and we'll be leaving for the Christmas. That's yeah.
3: right. Um, I just wanted to add two things to term extraction, to being able to have something in the booth that could be useful. Um, Two things from just experience of of working with a computer screen in front of me in the booth or working remotely over the last few years is that, inevitably, all of the tools, the font size is too small. (laughs) And it needs to be readable, and we need to be able to read it very quickly. So I, I think that adds to it as well. And, uh, frankly, I'm really excited to try out the speech-to-text and speech recognition with a, a CHI tool, because that is something, if it can extract those terms out of the incoming speech and provide suggested translations with sufficient speed, that I see, as long as it's simple, and easy to glance at and see without having to to try to see what it says or pull it out of a, a long sentence or string of text, that can be extremely useful because it basically starts to economize my existing process and it brings down my cognitive load. I'm not flipping through pages like, oh, I know I wrote that down three pages ago when it first came up. If it can come up right there and I can see it and say, that's it, use it. Um, or if it's totally wrong, I can just say oh, that's not it, and I can move on. So that's something that I see as a very feasible Christmas gift for December.
0: <laughs> well, I've got the, I've got the Christmas yep. gift. I would like to. Uh, I would like to give my students, maybe in interpreting. We talked about uh, technology and adopting technology, making a conscious decision maybe for move, to move from paper support to a tablet, for example. Well, at university, if already we are integrating these tools and we are testing them and we are speaking with companies and companies are using universities as a a kind of a a trial um, space where they can speak, engage um, with students who are learning well then you, you train students to use tools, they will have an opinion about tools um, they, then uh, companies will be able to adjust a little bit more and when they come on the market they can use these tools and I think it's not just the tools to interpret once you are officially an interpreter and you are in the booth but I would love to give my students a tool where they can connect online and they can practice interpreting with students from another university because they've got the same language combination for example so it's not just you know, technology to Interpret for the sake of interpreting in a meeting. It's also for the for the sake of training, um, also continuous learning as well. Uh, so CPDs, uh, so practicing on a daily basis. Um, do, can we do this on Skype? I'm fed up with this. Uh, do we, we use video conferencing. We've we've got virtual classes, but this is quite heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would dream of giving my students a tool to be able to practice. Uh, together across universities um, with something that is quite reliable. Mm. But
1: yeah, I just wanted to it. throw a quick spanner in the works as a, in the form of a question, especially to those who are teaching in the audience and also on the, um, on the panel, because it's, it's great to have this automatic term extraction, for example, but I think there's a, there's a question or a, a debate to be had about um, the value that is represented by tough terminology work and going out and hunting for terminology, building your glossary, because that also contributes to you internalizing and memorizing glossary entries. Um, So that's one point. And I think there was a question yesterday as well in some of the sessions where we were talking about, is there actually enough time in the curriculum or in in the training to teach all these technology skills to students on top of all the other things that they already have yeah. to learn, like the actual yeah. skills of translation and business yeah. skills, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, wait,
4: maybe I'm responsible for teaching that in Cologne. We have a course which is information and knowledge management for conference interpreters, and I always insist on giving them also the basics of infam- what's information, what's knowledge, what do I need. I love to see yesterday that the semiotic triangle was explained because yes. that's all. Well, I always <laughs> go back. <laughs> Um, insist on Mm. that they need to know what that's about because it's not only about terms it's also about the semantics and the pragmatics the the situation who wants what to do what Mm. and this is something they also have to keep in mind and not forget about while they're compiling glossaries and i found that particularly important because the the software landscape is evolving so quickly Mm -hmm. once they are really professionals tools might be completely different and hardware too. Mm. So they must be able to make a qualified decision about what mm. they need and what they don't need.
0: So, so isn't this maybe what we are talking about, developing a mindset That's it. for yes. technology yes. in universities. Mm-hmm. So it's a normal way of yeah. you know, living with technology yes. at the yeah. very heart
4: of what you do. And they are not digital natives in a way that they mm. know how to handle all the programs. It's just a myth.
1: It's a bit I'm, of a myth, yeah. yeah. yeah I agree.
4: Absolutely. And interestingly, I've been trying to drag people into using terminology management systems for years and now the first time I really see something like a voluntary uptake is that we're starting to, to do online shared glossaries, the collaboration. That's the first time I see my colleagues happily working together in it's a spreadsheet, it's simple and it's not as sophisticated as it should be maybe but that's the first time I see people just really on their own saying okay we do the glossary I I like that last time it saves so much time and we're all together I don't know if the social factor or component makes it more attractive
2: maybe before we dive into the collaboration piece which I think is important I think historically or traditionally there maybe are two answers to your question which are the answers I hear from colleagues when I ask this question One is time. How do you fit it all in? A lot of interpreting training programs are just one year. Yes. In such a short period of time, when you have to learn so many practical skills, something might have to give. And the argument is made that this is what has to, what has to give. I don't know if I agree with that argument, but that argument I've heard that argument many times. Mm -hmm. The other argument I've heard is we need to develop skills. We don't need to teach people how to use tools. They need to develop the skills before they're ready to learn to use the tools. I don't necessarily agree with that argument, but that is the other argument that I hear for, for why, um, why this is not taught like over taught.
4: But the point is that it's, going, it's, to, it's supposed to help to learn more quickly, to prepare for mock conferences more efficiently. And to make you a better interpreter. And to make you a better interpreter. So it's not really, I can't see the point of taking it out of the curriculum. I don't think it
2: will help. But it's not about taking it out. It's about adding it in. Yes, but you no. said that might be
4: something. Um, they have to learn the skills first, and then we start with the rest of it if there's still
3: time. I'll jump in on that one since we, I think we switched to the question yes. that, that came from um, the University of Geneva. Uh, the reason it's not being taught, I think that there, are, there is credence to be given to the arguments that you've put forth, but sometimes I worry that in academia we continue to do things the way we've done them because that's the way we've always done them, right? And uh, it is difficult sometimes to get the USS Academe to move one or two degrees because there are so many committees and different things that have to be approved and hoops that need to be jumped through. And those are often there for good reason. Nevertheless, it slows down academia's ability to adjust rapidly to change. Now, that said, um, where I teach, um, it's usually left up to the professor. If the professor wants to include something in the course, um, I decided to take initiative and received approval from my dean to teach a remote interpreting technologies and practices course. As a pilot this semester, um, the results, I haven't heard, I, I haven't received my, my evaluations yet. They'll come at the end of the semester. But the course filled immediately and had a wait list. I had students from the United States, uh, from Europe, and also from Asia all enrolled in the course and all very interested in finding out. They weren't gung-ho and saying, I want to become a remote interpreter, and that's all I want to do. Many of them were saying, I'm curious. I hear a lot about this. I want to know what's going on. And so the whole purpose of the course was simply to inform them so that they could begin to develop their own criteria to decide what it is that they found acceptable and what they would not as they are approached. Because they they are going to be the ones that get approached to do this much sooner than my generation will that it's playing out that way very clearly. So, I, I guess I would just say it is starting to happen. Um, I'm in favor of seeing it happen more. I think they need to have good knowledge about how not only, you know, say, for example, CHI tools and remote interpreting platforms, which are very much a part of what we're concerned about today, but also to have a good understanding of uh, speech-to-text technology and machine translation, and speech synthesis as well. Because they need to be able to explain clearly what the difference is between that and what they offer. So, there are some big incentives as to why we need to be teaching these technologies to a certain extent. Now, we can't do this if we have to sacrifice core skills training. But, I do think that there is some wiggle room to be able to find the ability to include an introductory course, a survey course, um, and fold technology into the interpreting classroom as well.
0: I would like to add maybe that we only think about um, the taught time, but there is a lot of time before the course starts. When students enroll, they know they've got a place on the course, usually that's about two to three months before the, the, the beginning of the course. And what we do, for example, with our students is to already start engaging with them on Google Communities. So we've got a Google Community, so already they've got to start engaging with the tools we are going to use to communicate. So with Google Communities comes Google Drive, Google Forms, Google Docs. um, And then when we start the course, not only do we know each other, we trust each other, we have um, talked a lot about technology, we've experienced technology and we are ready to go from day one. So we have saved a lot of time. There was no um, wasting, wasting time where we had to choose should we teach interpreting skills or technology. We simply had an informal time when we engaged on the platform for various purposes. But this is really efficient. We've been doing it for four years now and we've seen a huge difference in the way our students approach teaching resources, not only during the course, but later on when they engage on the market with other colleagues in the booth as well. Mm. So um, as we said yesterday, if I've got a glossary online and I say, would you like to share my glossary, Uh, not many people will say no, you know, right? (laughs) So they will take on the offer Mm. and this is a chance not only to maybe go on a shared platform, but also it's a chance to see that whilst you are in the booth, you can already upgrade, you know, the vocabulary, you can insert new vocabulary. So basically you're working live and the person who is not interpreting is doing quite a lot of work in the background to make your life easier and vice versa. So you're really both engaged into a team. So I think that, you know, engaging before we start teaching is something that in my experience has had a huge impact Yes, yeah, and I
1: mean, just to complete that, I think there's also a, a big, I think we mentioned this at the conference last week in Barcelona, that there's a, a role as well for professional associations and for, um, and I think also for, for bigger employers like the Parliament or the Commission to to keep up the continuous professional development also when it comes to tools, because they keep changing all the time. So, for example, we've done uh, a fair amount of, of tablet training, so training uh, also let 's say more senior interpreters who haven 't grown up with technology, um, sort of upskilling them because um, there 's a lot of interest actually in, in them and you 've confirmed that as, uh, as well a lot of interest in using tablets, for example, in the booth um, because of the op- obvious advantages that, that they have so I think there 's a role again for for professional associations because there 's lots of people working there who can um, provide training and for the for the big institutions as well to um, to keep their, well, employees, I think, engaged with um, technological change.
2: And I think that there's also, a, there's an importance of, of CPD for professionals that we need to continue to underscore um, because the world is changing. We can do our jobs better uh, thanks to some of the tools that are out there. And so not only do associations need to offer the courses, but people need to be the sort of maybe even won over by, by them. I mean, I do this on a regular basis. Every time I sit down in the booth, I'm telling my colleague about the tools. I'm a bit of a geek this way, but I'm telling my colleagues about the tools I'm using, saying, well, look what we're doing right now. We're doing multilingual drafting. This tool that has parallel synchronous scrolling is really useful for multilingual drafting because I can see the text in one language and another. And when they hear about this, they're won over to the cause, I suppose one can say.
0: And I would like to add that from CPDs, there needs needs to be an additional dimension, which is the workshop aspect. Um, I think that some students or interpreters go to CPDs, they get a long list of new apps, new software, but do they use it afterwards? What is missing for them to engage really fully with Mm it? It's a little bit as if I'm collecting a shopping list but I never go to the supermarket mm. to buy the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the ingredients I need. So I think, you know, CPDs should really have an element where you're trying things out as well. You're not just listening Hands to on, a person yeah. who's on. telling you, this is great. I use this. This works. So how can we integrate this part, I would say, which is much more experiential um, and we then discuss it?
1: Yeah, which is what we're doing, I mean, yeah. uh, what we've been doing in the institutions, so th- these are really very practical, hands-on courses, so yes. we we're specifically trying to avoid telling colleagues about anything and everything that exists, but we try mm-hmm. to focus on a few use cases or scenarios like, what do I do to manage my glossaries, uh, for example, so we, we try to focus on a few things mm-hmm. and trying
5: to go hands-on and into detail, yeah. I think. But B- really, basically... What do you do with your glossaries? How do you manage your documents? How you annotate mm-hmm. your documents? And how you take additional notes and, and how you store additional background uh, um, information? And what we, I mean, I don't know whether Alex was doing that at SKIC like that, but in the parliament, there was always the two of us. So that one was sort of showing and demonstrating the apps and, and the approaches, and the other one was troubleshooting because people get stuck mm-hmm. and they really appreciated it. They really liked it, you know, because there's always someone there to help them out and and, and that so that they could could move on. So you didn't really lose people along. Mm-hmm.
4: But do they really apply it after that? Because when I'm in the booth with EU interpreters, they do lingui and mm-hmm. check their calendar on a tablet and do everything else on paper. Mm-hmm. I never see anyone managing their glossaries or documents on the tablets. Maybe that's because I work with the Different people than those who are trained by you—is it hmm. really being accepted?
1: Well, I think not, not. Not all necessarily will will continue doing it. I mean, but I'm not dis- saying it's your fault. Dis- no, I'm, I'm not. just surprised because despite your best so well. intentions, yeah. So, uh, but some maybe discover that it's not for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can just say that there's a big interest. I mean, whether people then adopt it for the long term.
5: Yeah, weird, I, know. I think it's it's sort of we are really talking about early adopters here it's it's still relatively new for people all these new technologies all this new hardware Josh's study was what 10 people well, that shows you the scale I mean really
4: um, I think especially at the EU you have everything and many things we are asking for like the synchronous scrolling and extracting and seeing the terminology highlighted in the text has been around in translation memories for, for, for decades. <laughs> so it's all yeah. there and you only need to tap it. Yeah. And I was just wondering if, we, if you had a system, for example, you have a meeting agenda and it's linked to that in your profi- language profile, yeah. the, in my five languages I need for, for the conference. And th- this could also be very useful for the delegates if, you, if they read, say, English and Polish.
5: Yeah, we do well, that, we have be, that, yeah. we already and have that. You,
4: and having something like that, the agenda, based on agenda, the links to the, the glossary and yeah, that's um, in Rina. five language mm-hmm. document with the, glo- with the terms highlighted, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. might be useful for everyone, because we're on our own, we're not a business case.
2: with mm-hmm. oh, just too no. few too people. Small. Mm-hmm. I, I just Did wanted you? to react also very quickly. It's not only about reinventing the wheel, it's about taking the resources that are already there and making them work better. And whether that's taking tools that exist for translators and tweaking them to make them work for interpreters, or whether it's taking the it and making it searchable for us. Uh, because it is so clunky. Yes. It is unusable, almost unusable, in the booth of you are interpreting. Hmm. If you're not interpreting, you're helping a your colleague, it's usable. It's but it, needs to be, it, it exists, the resource, resources there.
0: Thank
6: you. There's a question, Alex. Yeah. Yeah, let me sort of half disagree and also applaud one of the comments I just heard here, because I think the what frustrates me from a scientific point of view is that that the Parliament and the Commission aren't really taking advantage of the research community that's out there to make it, to, to work that problem for itself, right? So the Commission spends enormous amount of money on these technologies, but then they say it's a conflict of interest for the Commission and the Parliament to actually use it. So it's not used, and then the Parliament goes and does studies which one of these uh, tools that are out there to buy, and now you're buying stuff that first of all was not designed for your application, and second, yeah, yeah. it's uh, built by foreign companies, and I shall not name names, uh, and then you have the situation that you're not debating whether you should do this on Google Drive or not, uh, when, you, when the security is an issue. And then, all the while you have the best researchers in the community itself. So why not, in fact, do like DARPA does? You know, DARPA spends enormous amount of research and then uses the research and it's for its own purposes and to do. If there is one area in Europe where that could be the case, it is language and this wonderful language experiment that is going on, where the research that is being funded could actually be drawn. We have, you know, we, with Martin and, uh, and colleagues, we had a wonderful thing in the conjunction of uh, um, a new virtual project mm-hmm. that was funded, but we had to tiptoe around it and get special permissions <laughs> to be even able to, to be allowed to talk to Sounds you guys right. in, the, in the course of doing our research. I think this is a policy change that has to happen. You ought to have a budget for this sort of thing. Make the researchers work for you and make yeah. them actually look at their workflow and build stuff that is useful for you. I mean, I could see dozens of potential super applications that could make your life easier and make this entire process smoother and more integrated. And, and we're not taking it on well. It makes my heart Sorry to say. Okay,
0: shall we move on to maybe a new topic? Mm-hmm. Um, Barry, you mentioned remote interpreting earlier yeah, on. And yeah, uh, yes. I was just wondering if we could <laughs> maybe open a can of worms here and uh, talk about something that sometimes interpreters feel uncomfortable to speak about. So is remote interpreting already with us? Is it something we want to promote or is it something we want to push away from us? Danger.
3: Wow. <laughs> no pressure there. <No> <laughs> so without a doubt it is here, it is here in multiple iterations. There are many different use cases and each use case is unique. Um, you may find some similarities depending on the elements of a meeting and whatnot. So far we focused a lot on conference interpreting within institutions. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to expand our horizon a little bit, and broaden our vision. Because interpreting in the institutions is important. It's a significant amount of work that's going on every day. But interpreting is happening in every other facet of uh, life. In Europe, in the United States, in Asia. And so, there are many different uh, forms of remote interpreting. So, having said that, there are a lot out there. One thing that was quite illustrative um, a couple of weeks ago at Interpret America 6, when we had a panel discussion, we had a representative from um, SCIC, we had a representative from Stanford Healthcare in the United States. Uh, Both of these representatives had worked uh, and continue to work on remote interpreting uh, solutions for their organizations. When I asked uh, the representative from DG SCIC, how many times a year do you organize remote interpreting or or events with remote interpreting? He thought for a moment, he said, about 12. And I turned to uh, the representative from Stanford Healthcare and I said, how many remote interpreting sessions do you have a year? She said about 18,000. And so I think we need to get some perspective (laughs) and understand that this isn't something that is coming. It really is here in many other applications. And one of the things that we've seen is in healthcare, in particular in Stanford, one of the things that was mentioned is that the physicians actually are much happier and the patients are much happier with this mode of delivering the interpreting service. Now, there are all sorts of things. Uh, You have to look at how did they adjust? What have they done to make it so that It is something that the interpreters want to do. It's not something that they're doing all day, every day. There are other organizations that are implementing this not from the interpreting office, but from the accounting office. And you can imagine how that's being done. So there are a lot of of issues in terms of implementation. One other thing I I think I would mention, and I know that there are a lot of opinions regarding remote interpreting, um, is that As we look at interpreting and the computer, or interpreting and technology, uh, remote interpreting is currently what is disrupting our way of of delivering our service and our way of working the most. Um, So it's a little bit different from what happened with translators with the introduction of translation memory and then the different iterations of machine translation. Right, That was striking right at the core at what, in what translators do. And remote interpreting is actually focusing more on how we do our job. In reality, what we do has not changed with remote interpreting, but it has introduced additional cognitive demands that haven't been researched uh, enough. And that research does have to happen because we need to have a good understanding of what these additional cognitive loads are doing. That said, it's being done on a daily basis around the world already, and interpreters are continuing to do it. And so you, you, you have what's going on in practice, but the research has to happen as well. I think we're just starting to see some of those, those um, fields start to fill in, and there is a lot of work to be done. And I think that this forum in particular could be a wonderful place where that research is presented and discussed and disseminated. So I think I'll stop there because I know there are lots of opinions about this and mine is just one.
0: Okay, thank you. Yes, just a remark for your suggestion about this forum. You are invited for
1: the next 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I think what you said, Barry, is as a classical example for the future is already here, but it's just not evenly distributed.
6: <laughs> exactly.
0: And may I add, actually, uh, the dimension of money and remote interpreting, not in terms of how much it costs, but how much interpreters are paid. For example, in the UK, uh, we use telephone interpreting for emergency services. Do you know that interpreters are paid per minute? I mean, it is this attractive? Um, we trained, uh, uh, we trained um, <laughs> so our interpreters with telephone interpreting. Um, mm. s- we started doing this in 2004. The, the 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 rate per minute has gone down and down and down. And when we trained our interpreters with telephone interpreting, they felt it was the most difficult uh, mm. exam that they had to take. So as a result, because the pay is so low, unqualified interpreters accept this kind of assignments they are not trained, there is no training that exists in telephone interpreting but believe me once I found myself in somebody's house and the lady was pregnant she fell down the stairs, she was an Arabic speaker and I was so glad I could pick up the phone and I could call 999 and ask for an Arabic interpreter so I could ask her how she felt and so this is absolutely vital so I think that you know, we do have a role to play in the training of telephone interpreters and we need to overcome this, this issue of, of rate and pay. I know in America there's a lot of telephone interpreting yeah. and I know that these centers are already um, a challenging topic to discuss. I have talked to a number of colleagues there as well.
3: Yeah, I think I would just add, as we continue with this discussion, is that it is very important to separate business practices from the technology. The technology is simply a tool. Now if the business practice needs to be addressed, then it needs to be addressed, but in all reality I don't think that we should fold the technology into the discussion, because it's you can separate those two out. Um, and I agree completely that working as a telephonic interpreter has a skill set that is required to do it well, and it is often extremely demanding. Uh, so. You, you've got those those issues to deal with. And with the telephone, I mean, we're really dealing with technology that's been around since the turn of the 20th century. But the practice of the way it's being applied is, is often problematic.
0: I'm looking at colleagues. Do you have any okay. other input on remote interpreting? I, I do. Okay, <laughs> <could you> go <laughs> for it. <laughs>
2: you?
4: you can go first. Okay. Um, talking about research to be done um, in January this year, I was one of the test persons of a um, case study on remote interpreting, supervised by Klaus Sieger, who happens to be in the audience. And um, Sebastiano, what, what's his name? G. 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 Bianco, was Bianco, he wrote the thesis, and the special thing about that was it, that we weren't just using cameras, but virtual reality headsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, headsets yeah. And that was such a weird and new experience because, uh, well, I was wearing the headset in the booth, in a normal booth, so I had to find my way without seeing anything, (laughs) that was one thing, but then, when I turned round, the camera turned round, it was just a swivelling camera, and I could, I, I was, there were two persons speaking, and I, the camera was in the middle, so when I turned down, I could stare right into people's faces when they were speaking. I felt a bit indiscreet, but (laughs) it was such a big advantage to be so close. You never get so close to your speakers in a normal setting, so there are always always really chances, opportunities to be seized as well. I mean, I see that there's a problem with frequency and sound quality and everything, but I found that really encouraging in terms of
2: remote interpreting. Josh? A few comments. Uh, I agree with... Pretty much everything you said that it. it's here, it's in different markets than the markets we were talking about, or it can be in different markets. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of research done, for example, on video medi- mediated remote interpreting in legal context by Sabina Brown. Yeah. yeah. The Avidicus yeah. project. That is probably the best source, broadest source of research on on remote that I know of. All sorts of issues about what you see, what you hear how good the sound quality is, how good the audio quality is, how many video cameras there are, if you can see body language, if you can see expressions, if um, you can see emotion. These are all things that that, are already, that we already are starting to see coming out a little bit from the research that's there and that we need to carry over to the research that's coming. Um, I'm delighted that there are people looking at minimum standards for remote interpreting, distance interpreting. I think it's very important, a very positive step. Um, and I think we need to also bear in mind the impact on interpreters uh, when we do it. Um, I would love to see more research on, on what it means for teamwork, for example, for yes. collaboration. Turn-taking. Um, turn mm. um, I'd also love to see more on fatigue. I know that there are some preliminary results that say that this is more tiring than working in, in some, t- in some uh, on-site setting. So these are just a few thoughts. Um, that should shape the research that's going on and the thinking that we're doing
0: about this. Uh, If I may add a final point on remote interpreting, Um, I took my students to Wandsworth Prison. And you may know that uh, prisons and courts now have a special agreement um, to use remote interpreting so that um, prisoners do not have to leave prison. Uh, It's safer, it's cost effective. So within prisons, you do have some rooms which are fully equipped with equipment but where where we practiced interpreting um, in prison you have to think that you know the context is completely new have you ever been to jail i don't know (laughs) know. and but you know it's it's really an experience that stays with you so in addition to interpreting remotely it's a complete different context for example we realized that the, the camera was not in the right position. Uh, The screen was quite large. You had to look at uh, the other room, at the bottom. So obviously you you look down, but the camera filmed you looking down. Well, if you are in court and uh, you're looking at this person who's in prison, who's looking down, giving evidence, what would that say to you? Does it say that this person is saying the truth? Does it say that this person is confident speaking about this experience? Maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we actually spoke to um, the uh, technicians there, asking them to change the position of the camera so that the eye contact would be would, would be much more natural and the person would look as if you know they are ashamed or looking down or mm-hmm. lying, you know. So this was just from a simple experience of us going to the context. But for the training interpreters, I would say it was the experience of interpreting in a complete different context in addition to the, the, the technology. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Dan, I just wanted to add one thing. Um, I think we're already seeing a, a, a change in, in mindset with the next generations coming in when it comes to remote. So, for example, Barry just said that he he teaches quite a, a big chunk of his course remotely
2: um,
1: through different platforms. And I know that Glendon, for example, the, the, the entire first year of the two-year course is taught remotely. So I think that, that will also, if you like remote or not, but that will certainly help change the mindset and... Um, Maybe not convince people, but at least they'll, they'll have a certain experience with working remotely. Um, so I think that that'll, that'll play a big role as well.
3: Yeah, they'll, they'll have the criteria to be able to make informed and, and wise decisions mm-hmm. about right. what they are willing to do and what they're comfortable with. And I think that that's extremely important. If I can add one more thing that um, all of these cases that we've mentioned <laughs> thus far are about replacement. They're about changing an existing way of working and having an interpreter no longer be physically present in a situation where in the past they have been. That is one part, but there is also within remote interpreting and with the use of uh, the new communication technologies that are out there where we are able to take interpreting where in the past we haven't been able to offer it. And this constitutes an opportunity to expand access, increase uh, the opportunity to receive professional linguistic services in new ways, Uh, talking about webinars, um, video conferencing, uh, audio conferencing as well. There are are multiple formats of virtual meetings that are taking place every single day. Trainings in companies. Uh, You have... uh, annual earnings reports or quarterly earnings reports and calls that are going on. And so there are ways to actually improve access to interpreting and also grow the interpreting market, which I think is a positive thing. But, of course, we tend to focus on those things that we know and we interpret new developments through uh, or from our current position. And so I find it helpful if we can step out of that position a little bit and say, yes, there are some replacements happening, but there is this other opportunity as well. And um, as one of the, the video blogs or, or podcasts that Alex listens to and I listen to, um, it was once said that what we have to do when a new technology approaches us, if we, if we look at it and we say, what does this replace in my life? It can appear scary. Mm -hmm. But if we look at the technology and say, how can this complement what I'm already doing? It changes our point of view and allows us to see the technology in new and often constructive ways. And I think at least that's where I try to focus my attention Mm -hmm. without putting on blinders or rose-colored glasses to say, well, all this other stuff will just be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Because that isn't readily apparent at all.
0: Thank you very much, Barry.
7: Actually, my, my comments uh, could fill the whole week, <laughs> I, I try to, uh, to limit myself to only a few um, comments on what I've heard. Um, first of all, because I, I jumped in before and said uh, what Sabina Brown did within the Abedicus project was basically consecutive interpreting. Mm-hmm. Um, why did I say this? Because it's uh, very important to make that differentiation when you talk about the technology that can be used for uh, either consecutive interpreting or simultaneous interpreting in terms of uh, audio quality in the first place but also in terms of uh, a lot of uh, additional uh, factors um, we, we, we know we have many different settings and Barry and I uh, we're, we're talking about this we have a whole variety of very very different settings where remote interpreting is already taking place and where it potentially could be could be an additional benefit mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. for the interpreters, to make this very clear, and I fully support what ben, uh, Barry said in the end. Uh, where we have to be careful is that as we do not have any evidence-based research, hardly any, right? there are some little things around, but there is not really the, the necessary evidence to say this can work or and this cannot work, um, we have to be very careful with implementing those technologies. Um, maybe mm, try in, in the try to to be state of the art, put it that way, uh, to follow the tendencies we are observing on the market, which are mainly um, um, driven by technical providers. Technical providers. Um, when they develop their technologies they do this and they, uh, they do this much much faster than we ever have seen any change in the translation uh, industry from, from, the, from the translators or interpreters part. Um, so what we need is that research and I can only um, call all of us uh, to um, try to make that research available as soon as possible which will mean that we should not be making this research, in an isolated way. Everyone within its own university and the EU within its own, let's say, um, yeah, world, which might be somewhat different to what happens on the freelance market for yeah, example, it, it is definitely different. Yeah? Yeah, it is. Uh, so we should not only focus on those who have the money at the moment, and we could spend it, we talked about this, yes, I do support this, but we also have to include the different perspectives from the market side. Um, and we need a network doing this research. We need to define exactly what do we need in, in what uh, time, and then go for it. Uh, because otherwise, the technology will just be coming over us. Uh, it's, it's, it's there, and it's coming over us. Over <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And so, um, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the research. Uh, this is maybe one of the um, most important things. That we need evidence-based um, results. Uh, and to be very clear, also from the side of the um, International Association of Conference Interpreters, remote interpreting, if it's done properly, can be a benefit, not only in economic terms for the ones who pr- have to pay for those services, but also for the interpreters, definitely. But it's important that it has to be properly done. And solutions like telephone interpreting, audio-only interpreting, are uh, suitable for certain settings, but are definitely not suitable for other settings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have to sort this out. We have to make a, a find an approach, really finding the best solution for every kind of setting. And not mixing it up saying remote interpreting this is all the same no it's not Mm -hmm. technologically it's not the same and in terms of cognitive load it's definitely also not the same
0: i I would agree and uh, and i would go back to what you said barry about the business models being different from the tools and i would say that um, unfortunately what what i seem to see is that interpreters who do remote interpret remote interpreting are classified Less qualified telephone interpreting. Uh, you, you know what? I mean, you have got layers, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it's a little bit, there's a bit of a stigma to this. So if I am an interpreter and I'm a conference interpreter, am I going to accept an interpreting assignment that's going to bring a different image to my reputation?
1: We've seen this before, though, in Nuremberg, you know, (laughs) the first simultaneous interpreters were belittled. Are you going to go sit at the back of the room now? I'm going to
3: stay up right next to the speaker, (laughs) okay? So the element of prestige is is an interesting one, but at the end of the day, we have to look at the opportunities that we have to expand access to the services. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing that is desperately needed, it is professional quality interpreting in new settings. Mm-hmm. And here with the refugee crisis in Europe, it was impossible to provide that. The technology was kind of there. The necessary professional linguists, no, they weren't. And they still aren't. And so they're, they're trying to figure out how to grapple with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's similar in a lot of other countries where they're grappling with how do we provide the correct interpreter and language combination within the court system or within the healthcare system. I mean, I'm, I'd like to mention one project that has just been very successful out of a semi-rural hospital in the Salinas Valley in California, where you have over 50% of the population is from Mexico, okay, but they don't all speak Spanish. Many of them speak indigenous languages in those communities where they are working agriculturally. And, and the hospital had to figure out a way to provide that interpretation to the members that, uh, of the community that spoke Triki or um, Mixteco, Bajo, and a number of languages. And the foundation of the hospital looked at this and they said, we've trained and helped these interpreters become qualified and have the language skills that they need and we don't have enough work for them to work full-time as interpreters and they said what if we are able to offer their services remotely through video remote interpreting and through telephonic interpreting and they were able to get the grant money to do this the technology is there and these interpreters who have come from indigenous communities and grown up in frankly in poverty Um, or very close thereto in the United States, have been able to leverage their language skills, get the training they need, and are now able to offer their services throughout the United States because of technology. And it's helped courts and hospitals and other public services address an acute need. It's an acute need, but it's not a constant need. Because how often are they going to need someone who speaks mom or tricky or one of these you know, other languages? But when they need it, they need it desperately to ensure that justice is served and to ensure that someone receives timely health care. So uh, I think if we look at those examples, we can see technology really as uh, an enabler to be able to help us address the world's communication needs. But uh, again... All of the other things come into this. Are they able to hear well? Can they see what they need to see to be able to do their job? And uh, much of that is just happening anecdotally, and people are saying, it would be nice for me to have this, I would like this, but we don't have the research right now to be able to point back to these things yet. So I, it's very true what you've said, Klaus. It has to be done. Um, but I do know one thing for sure, The companies are not going to stop iterating, they're not going to stop innovating, and they're not going to continue, they're not going to stop trying to sell the solutions that they have. And so we have a window of opportunity, and we need to take advantage of that and try to influence for the better this entire technological process that is just moving forward with increased speed.
4: Thank you very much. I think just, and I've been doing a a small case study on analyzing booth notes and seeing what people write down there, which is very, very basic. It's just numbers and nouns and names of institutions. It's not mind maps and things like that. I think the reason is the paper doesn't disappear. It's always there and you have these very crucial few words you want to see constantly there and it's just um, reliable. I think that's sort of the second screen people are using.
2: I think there are already two screens in a lot of booths. There's the one where we're seeing the feed from the room. Also. Mm -hmm. For starters, um, there's whatever device people are bringing into the booth with them, and sometimes they're bringing multiple devices, smartphones as well, Uh, tablets and computers, laptops. Uh, I've seen it all, yes, paper, absolutely. Uh, I think Alex and I would both agree that there are multitasking functions and features that are available in different devices that allow you to have a device with a very small footprint where you can still do multitasking.
4: Uh, Uh, What's also interesting that you have the, the screen of your booth mate where you can also look at, because sometimes you tend to look up things your colleague is trying to find or struggling to find mm-hmm. in their memory. So.
1: Well, I think in, in ConSec, there is no inherent incentive, I guess, to switch away from paper towards the tablet except curiosity. No,
4: you, you uh, don't have to be afraid of running out of paper for for, for example.
1: yeah, but I mean, it, it's, there are more, just, in my view at least, sort of soft. Factors basically. So that's why we might, white consecutive is different. And also, consecutive also sometimes happens on the go. That kind of, so there's still a lot of limitations. And in simultaneous, of course, that the big limitation is space. So while we may want to have several screens or devices, sometimes it's just not possible, especially in mobile booths, because there's just, just no space. It's a physical limitation.
3: And I was trying to say this previously, but it really is. You can, with technology, do old things in new ways, or you can find completely new things to do to complement what you've done and to improve. And I think that we need to move towards the latter, in addition to doing some of the old things in in new ways. Um, In response to your question about workstations, um, I have been working remotely now for a number of years, and I finally built my remote interpreting studio that I wanted and I have two very large screens. I also um, make use of a tablet as well sometimes, it really depends, and I have the space that I need to be able to work. Um, And I am able to do a lot more research much more quickly when I'm on my half hour, my 15 minutes actually off when I'm working simultaneously online. Um, and I can research things, I can find things, I can have a lot more open, my computer is much more powerful, that screen real estate makes a huge difference. And when I'm in the booth, if I have a tablet, it's a limited amount of real estate. It is, but it can be powerful, or with a laptop. So um, the answer is yes, some are. And I've seen in a number of remote interpreting workstations, mainly for consecutive, for VRI and for telephonic, where some of them do have dual screens with what they're doing um, to help them facilitate what they need to do as they're looking up glossaries and what's being provided by the employer for them to do their jobs. Um, but we do need to look beyond. We have to ask ourselves, how do we do this in, in different ways? It's, again, we have the issue of uh, machine translation, which is slowly creeping up on Simultaneous interpretation um, there are things you know what, what Alex is doing is is really cool. What a number of other people are trying to do with um, earbuds and other technology and mashing together Google Translate or what Microsoft is doing or what others are doing with IBM Watson um, trying to come up with standalone in ear translators um, so far. It's been a lot of noise and no real technology. In fact, to my knowledge, at least three of the companies that have promised that they were going to deliver technology in hand this year still have not delivered it. One of them I'm waiting because I purchased it six months ago and I want to try it out. And I still haven't received it. Right? And I keep following up with them, and they're trying, and they're learning as they go, and, and you know they, they have the best of intentions. But if you look at their group uh, that is part of the startup company, or whatever it is, you have some very capable computational linguists. You have some wonderful business people. You have people that know sales. And you have some that know product design. And does anybody actually understand how interpreting works? I have to wonder.
2: You mentioned consecutive. I was going to briefly touch on the synconcept. We had a little demo, but I don't think there's time to show it show to you. But I can show it to you later. The point being that I think, like what Barry was saying, there are new new things, new things that are coming about in our profession, And it represents a great opportunity for us uh, for doing our jobs better and for working in other contexts that we might not have worked in before. And I think that this implies a real need for training and for CPD and for tra- training for buddy interpreters and training for those that are out there to learn about how the profession is changing and
0: make most of it. And this, from what I understand from everyone, should be backed up by research. Collaborative Ideally, yeah.
5: But, but I, I think also by, by proper communication, because this is the, one, one of the elements that is missing or maybe not addressed directly. We should really try to communicate this to, to our colleagues that whatever it, it just said it, it's, it's to make us better interpreters, not to replace us. Therefore, we have to embrace technology. And we shouldn't be in denial. Um, um, Bianca, I think, was talking about scepticism, for example. I think there is a lot of scepticism just because of that. People don't know, and and, and are not, and I and are, and, and are not informed well enough yeah. to make choices, so that they can use tools in different contexts for different purposes according to their individual needs. Because we had this question at the, at the very beginning whether this is whether our multitasking or whatever other skills are individual or there is a common denominator. I think it's, it's a very sort of individualized profession. There are many approaches among us. So therefore people just have to know and make the decision for themselves.
0: I'm looking at the time and I think that we've got to wrap up right now. So I'd like to thank all members of the panel and I'm thank
1: you, I, thank, you got, thank you
3: Danielle
0: I've got quite a, a number of key ideas I'm taking away with, with me and I'm sure we're going to be able to talk further after this panel thank you